Welcome to WellMed Radio, a service of WellMed Medical Management. WellMed Radio will educate you about health and wellness for seniors and their families throughout Bear County in Central Texas. During the next hour, your hosts Ron Aaron and nurse practitioner Cora Zhuk will share information that will help you improve your health and wellness. And now, here's Ron Aaron and Cora Zhuk. Well, thank you very much and welcome to WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Cora Juke. You hear us at 9.30 a.m. The Answer, Sundays at 5 p.m. Cora is a graduate of Texas Tech University undergrad and earned her degree in nurse practitioning there. And she's now working on her Ph.D. at the University of Texas in Houston. And it's good to see you. It's great to see you. And clarification, it's actually not a Ph.D. It's a doctorate of nursing practice. Oh, thank So you. it's a practice doctorate, but on the executive track. <laughs> Doctor of nursing practice. Yes, but cool. on the executive track. So when I graduate, I'll be a nurse exec instead. And pretty soon you'll be running hospitals all over America. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> and then as you take a look at our, our topic today, before we welcome our special guest, uh, Dr. Cora Wallace, uh, for your patients and especially those with diabetes, which is almost all your patients. Mm -hmm. How concerned are you about feet? You know, I'm very concerned about feet, and all primary care providers should be concerned about feet. Any patient who is a diabetic or you suspect um, potentially has some peripheral vascular disease or atherosclerosis of the you know, native arteries of the extremities as well, you need to take a look at their feet. You need to make sure that there's no open wounds, if they don't have skin breakdown that they don't know about, um, or even that they have nerve damage, you know, and they can't feel their feet. We see people walk in the most improper shoes, and, and don't look at my feet today because I'm in the most improper shoes. I'm in high. High heels, heels. yes. Um, But... For, for the most part, most of our patients that are on Medicare don't wear high heels any longer, but they might have suffered some of the damage of wearing high heels throughout the year or throughout the years um, when they worked. But they wear, you know, what they refer as chanclas here, or, you know, flip-flops or sandals that rub. Um, I've seen ill-fitting shoes, and so I see a lot of damage to the feet. And it's so nice at WellMed to be able to call on colleagues who are podiatrists who specialize in disorders of the feet and making people's feet better. And in the world of coincidence, we have one with us. We do. And it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Cora Wallace. Corey Wallace. Corey? <laughs> How would you like to be named? My name is Corey. <laughs> it's okay. That's With a little Corrin. in joke. I like Corey. that. Corey like and that. Corey's difficult. I like Corey. <laughs> we could change your name. Okay. Actually, I've done shows over the years, been doing this a lot of years where I've called someone by the exact wrong name for the entire show. And they never they never interrupt and say, oh, by the way, it's Smith, not Jones. And my answer to that is, well, you should have interrupted. Now you have to change your name. It's that simple. <laughs> now, you grew up in Cibolo, so you were a local person. Yes, Went sir. to a Samuel Clemens High School, and then off you went, undergraduate school, Texas A&M, whoop. And then you decided to go into podiatry. I did. How did that happen? It was a functional coincidence. So I was an athletic trainer in high school, so did a lot of the sports medicine side of things. Got an undergrad degree in nutrition. We focus a lot on diabetics in that field. Um, And so I got into the the diabetic world and realized that there was a need. I shadowed a few podiatrists here in town and decided that that was for me. And that's how I ended up in podiatry. And then you went off uh, to podiatry school in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University. I told you I had lived in Philadelphia for a while. I was on the radio there. I liked Philadelphia. You didn't say you liked it, but you I didn't don't hate like it. Snow. You didn't hate it, right? Yeah, I just don't like snow. I miss snow. Oh, no. To look at. <laughs> right. I don't want to shovel it. I don't want to drive in it. But it is so pretty the morning after a snow to look out the window and see the pristine snow all across, for example, the college campus. As long as it's on a Saturday. Exactly. And you don't have to walk through right. it. Well, that's pretty cool. And then you went out to Phoenix to do your residency. I did. And then all Texas women come home. That's right. I came home. And what brought you to WellMed? So I started as a contractor. I was working with WellMed on Fridays um, it, at their satellite clinics out in the suburbs. And I enjoyed it a lot. I enjoyed the people that I was working with. 
and it just seemed like a natural fit. They had a job opening, and I took them up on it. I like that. That's how I first met Dr. Wallace as well. As I, I was working in the Floresville Clinic, um, Floresville, south of San Antonio. And so I met her there. And, uh, it, yeah, that's where, you know, a lot of our contractors actually start out is, is focusing on some of these outlying markets where it's really difficult to get some of our specialists to come. Sure. So, yeah, and then she joined WellMed, and it was such a treat. Yes. It was great. Now, the two well, of you also have something in common. Your kids show cattle. Yes. And as a wee little pup in Cibolo, uh, you showed pigs and turkeys. And goats. And goats. Mm-hmm. And I learned something I had never known before, <laughs> and I had never thought of this. If you go to a show where they're showing turkeys, and someone's walking around hanging onto a turkey upside down, chances are it's a dead turkey, which yeah. you can show. It's a low probability. Yeah, they, they don't always, they're not always dead, but you can show them dead as long as they died at the show. But no, they're, most of them are alive. They don't necessarily like being held upside down, but they don't have a choice, do they? And you also said that turkeys are, turn out to be very sensitive, temperamental, difficult. They are. they are, and they all come from the same place on the same day. So everybody in the state of Texas that's going to show a turkey gets them from Texas A&M on the same day, and it's all about how you raise them. It's one of the fairest contests that's out there because you're not going to go out and spend $3,000 on a turkey and I'm going to spend 100 We all bought them on the same day. Really? Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is, you know, just they feed them, and, and it, at the very end it comes down to what you actually fed them, right? How much you fed them and the type of product that you fed them. But a lot of times, right at the very end, I see my friends who show turkeys one pellet at a time, just one <laughs> pellet at a time. <laughs> Trying to get it in them. That's right. That's wow. right. Yeah, turkeys are interesting. In fact, they're so cute when they're little bitty. When they first come, they're the cutest things you've ever seen. And then they go through that awkward teenage stage where they're just hideous. And you think, these things are the ugliest things I've ever seen. (laughs) And then they grow up. And then they grow up, yeah. And they're the tastiest things sometimes (laughs) that you've ever seen. (laughs) Well, I like turkey. Uh, I I don't eat those uh, humongous drumstick legs at county no, fairs. I don't eat those either. Are, are those from real turkeys or those are those are real, artificial? Those are more <laughs> along the lines of what a show turkey size is at time of show. Seriously? Seriously. Yeah, they look like they've so. been water ballooned up. You know, they, wow. they, yes, they're huge. And so you think about these little kids who are able to start showing at nine or third grade. And these are tiny little folks who are holding up, you know, 50 pound turkeys. So they really got to work on, you know, exercising these guns. We have to check your biceps because Dr. Wallace <laughs> was showing in the third grade, right? I was. I showed um, 10 years, third grade through 12th grade. Cool. Mm-hmm. Were you a member of 4-H? I was in 4-H, and in high school I was a member of the FFA. Cool. Yeah. And it had to be a great upbringing. It was wonderful. My dad's a veterinarian, and so agricultural life was something that we were going to get into, whether we liked it or not. But it really seemed to be a natural fit. And and the scholarship potential in the state of Texas is so great for those kids. Now, you were not interested in following in your father's footsteps. He encouraged us not to. Because it's a tough business. It's a tough business. It's the debt-to-income ratio when you come out of vet school that he was worried about. Because of the student loans you have to get. The student loans. So when my dad went to vet school, he did two years of undergrad and three years of vet school. And now pretty much you have to finish your undergrad degree in four or five or six years, however long that takes you. And then vet school's four years also. They've also gone to internships for vets. And so that's one to two years of not your full potential of earnings that would come in. And then you're stuck with thousands in debt. Hundreds of thousands. I didn't want to say it, but you did. It's a lot. It's a lot of money. It is. Now, what about podiatry school? You still go undergrad. You still go to undergrad, and then you go to podiatry school. It's separate like dental school. There's nine of them in the country. At the time that I went to school, there were eight. So you have to pick one of those. And that's why I left the state of Texas, because there's not a podiatry school here in Texas yet. Um, So I went to Philadelphia, and it was an enjoyable experience, but I'm happy to be back. There's no podiatry school in Texas? No, sir. There are residencies for our surgical training, but there are no podiatry schools. Talk to UIW. They start every new school. (laughs) Which is interesting, too, because we have such a large population of diabetics here. You know, we have a a huge Hispanic population, and many of them are diabetics just by by heredity, you know, issues there. So, unfortunately, that we don't have a podiatry school, that's, that's something that somebody needs to look into. Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer. 
I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Cora Juke, and our very special guest today is podiatrist Dr. Corey Wallace, who is with Northeast Specialties, Specialists for Health, part of the WellMed system, and she has an opportunity to go to other locations as well, I assume, because there's specialists for health in several spots. I do. I go out in the Northeast kind of corridor, Shirts, New Braunfels, and Seguin. Um, we have three other podiatrists that are in our group, and they cover uh, different areas. Dr. Blackman is in the Northwest. Uh, Dr. Rodriguez is downtown, and Dr. Uh, Borchers is on the south side of town. As you think about now dealing with a population mostly seniors, Medicare eligible, uh, is it different from what you thought it would be when you were uh, looking at getting into practice? It's not. Diabetics and diabetic um, limb salvage and wound care is something that I enjoyed in school and in training, and that's really where I wanted to focus. Um, While I love children, I don't love treating their feet, and so I'd much rather work on adults and geriatrics. Problem with children's feet, they're so small. They're small, and you can mess them up for the rest of their life. Because they're growing, then they're changing. By the time you get to 65, your feet are pretty much set. Yes. That's the way they're going to be. I don't know. Mine seem to be growing from time to time. <laughs> now, I remember, uh, and, and I'm a little older than the two of you, but I remember my late grandma, Tamarkin, uh, growing up in Cleveland, Ohio in the 40s and 50s. They had to cut my, uh, she had seven children, five daughters, two sons. Uh, and the daughters would cut holes in her shoes to let her bunions hang out. Nice. Took the pain off. Still happens. Still happens. Yes. We get people that come in with all kinds of shoe modifications. That happens to be one of them. That's self-diagnosis and treatment. It's self-treatment for sure. Um, so bunions are a bad deal. So unfortunately, they? they are primarily hereditary. They are a deformity of the joint just on the close side of your big toe. So they show up as a prominence to the medial aspect of your foot, and that's the head of your first metatarsal that has kind of migrated out there. A lot of people notice it when their big toe rubs on their second toe, but that's not actually what the bunion is. The bunion is the actual prominence of the first metatarsal closer to the other foot. It's painful. It can be. For some people, they are extremely painful. Um, And we can treat that. We can treat it conservatively and we can treat it surgically. However, there are a lot of people who walk around with bunions that do not bother them. One of my mother's favorite things to do is to get in the elevator with somebody, wait until the door closes, and then look at their feet and tell them, my daughter can fix that. That is not what they want to hear. (laughs) (laughs) So some people, they don't hurt. And so if they're just a a deformity of the foot and they're not painful, we'd much rather get you in proper size shoes or proper width shoes and just go on about life because the surgeries are cumbersome and painful. What is it you do surgically? So what we do surgically, depending on the size of the bunion, I tell my patients that having a bunion is like saying I have a dog. It depends. Do you have a Chihuahua or a Great Dane? They're two completely different dogs. Or a but turkey. Both dogs. <laughs> but that one's not a dog. <laughs> so um, if you have a small bunion, we can just shave off the side of the bump. If you have a little bit larger bunion, we have to do an osteotomy, which means cut through the bone and move the bone over to get it in more proper alignment. Sounds easy to do, but painful to go through. It is. The actual surgery is easy. I can do that in about an hour, but the actual recovery is what's painful. So it usually takes you two to four weeks, sometimes longer, to stay off of your foot, and that's what patients have a difficult time with. And that's why it's so important, too, is what, that you're collaborating here at WellMed. You're collaborating with the, the primary care provider as well because, it you know, for somebody who has painful bunions, just to go into a podiatrist and say, I want them to fix my bunions is, is one thing. But what if this patient's a diabetic? And what if their A1C or their sugars are high? Or what if their vascular status is not up to par? Or what if they're extremely overweight and they're going to put more pressure on that, you know, that, that joint post-surgical or surgery. So it's really good that we're able to collaborate and say, hey, listen, this is a good candidate or not such a good candidate for surgery. I love that at WellMed that we're able to do that with our specialists. Now, blood flow isn't what it should be. Healing is a challenge. 
healing is a challenge if your blood sugars are high and mm -hmm. if your blood flow is not adequate. If you don't have enough blood flow to heal a normal scratch or scrape on your foot in a timely fashion, you don't need to electively have somebody cut through you. So what do you do to accommodate a bunion that can't be surgically adjusted? So we can do a couple of things. The number one thing is to get you in a properly fitting shoes. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Perfect. She's Dr. Corey Wallace. I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Corey Juke, is with us as well. You hear us on 930 AM, The Answer. Carol Zorniel, we talk a lot about caregiving on Caregiver SOS on air, but what is it? Caregiving is caring for a family member, a friend, a loved one, someone who's in your life that needs help with bathing, dressing, buying groceries, medical appointments. If you do any of those things, you're a caregiver. And how can this program help? Caregiver SOS On Air has information from people who have been caregivers, who work with caregivers. It can be book authors, scientists, doctors, the latest information on caregiving right here on KLUP. And one of the things we learn from so many folks is they fail to ask for help when they need it. Well, caregivers do need help. We don't like to ask for help, but we need it. And you'll get tips on how to ask for help and how to have a better life as a family caregiver. Plus, there's a great website you can go to, caregiversos.org. Caregiver SOS on air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 930 a.m., The Answer. Hey, we're having the best side conversations here in the studio. I'm Ron Aaron. Along with our co-host, Cora Juke, who is a nurse practitioner. You hear us at 930 a.m., The Answer, and our special guest, Cibolo Native, Dr. Corey Wallace, who is a podiatrist with Northeast Specialist for Health, part of the WellMed system. She's been with WellMed for about three years. Also has a newborn little eight-month-old baby boy. I do. How cool is that? He's super sweet. What's I his like name? I like having him. His name is Wyatt. Oh, I like that. Yes. Very Texas. Yes. So he's really sweet now. My son was really sweet at eight months, too. <laughs> now he's 14, and he's not so he's sweet not anymore. So sweet. No. <laughs> he won't let me hold him, and he makes me drop him off, you know, like five blocks from the school, because he's like, oh, you are not cool, Mom. <laughs> no. So it makes me want to drop him off and then go, hi and, there. And give him a kiss goodbye, <laughs> yes. right? That's right. Wow. Well, I have uh, twin boys who are five, and they're very good at being five. Good. And a little girl who's seven who is very good at being 27 so Perfect. it's a challenging household which uh, which we enjoy uh your little boy has a huge future ahead of him you want him to be a podiatrist i want him to be whatever he wants to be perfect answer <laughs> yeah perfect answer i like that now we were talking about bunions and you were talking about the steps you take in diagnosing and treating mm -hmm. so uh to diagnose and treat a bunion it's most important to get x-rays because um, like we talked about, if you have a Chihuahua bunion or if you have a Great Dane bunion, there's a big difference in those. And the only way to really see the difference is to do an x-ray. Because by physical exam, they're not always truly the way they are in, in the bone structure. So first off, we like to accommodate people conservatively as much as possible. And shoe gear is the most important part of that. And so we order um, wider or, or more appropriate sized shoes because what people don't understand is your feet can change sizes. They're not going to go from a 6 to a 10, but they might go from a 6 to a 6.5. I've worn a size 8 since the 5th grade. I suggest you get your feet sized. Thank you very much. Because <laughs> <laughs> they might be a little different than you think. Um, and so we do that. We also have bunion sleeves and things like that. There's a lot of patients who try devices to straighten out their big toe. Unfortunately, that won't work unless you do the bone surgery to correct the deformity causing your toe to lean over towards the second toe. Now, what's a bunion sleeve? So I use a silicone sleeve. It wraps around your big toe, does not apply compression. So even if you have bad blood flow, you can still use it. And it lays over your um, medial prominence, that big bump that rubs on your shoe. And what that silicone sleeve does is it gives your foot something soft to rub on and your shoe something soft to rub on that aren't rubbing on one another. Interesting. When I had uh, uh, surgery for a basal cell carcinoma on my face right here between the nose and cheek, the doctor recommended after the stitches were out uh, and I'd been post-surgical for about three weeks to use silicone 
mm-hmm. on the scar to make it uh, uh, less prominent. Right, and that's like a liquid form. This is or, a, like or a the, gel. Well, I have the others too, the uh, plastic in oh. a container sleeve. Yeah. Yeah. So this is not adhesive at all. Like it won't stick to you at all. It stays on with the compression of your sock. Oh, cool. So, so you could yeah. use that. Can you buy that over the counter? For self-treatment so, of your... So I haven't seen them over the counter. Um, Dr. Jill's is the company that they come from. And if you can find a pharmacy that carries them, they're great. The only caveat to that is they do sell them that are foam or a fabric material. And those don't do the <coughs> function of preventing the friction. They still allow for friction between that fabric and your foot. Friction's the killer. Yes. Well, it's the same with, you know, with our diabetics as well. So if, if you have a bunion, you know, a patient who is a diabetic and it's constantly rubbing up against the shoe, you're also creating a, an open portal for infection, such as an ulceration as well. So and that's if they why have uh, peripheral neuropathy, they may not feel it. That's exactly Correct. right. So it's, that's why it's so important. Those, those properly fitting shoes for your diabetic, and I do believe that, the, that most insurances will pay a portion of those shoes. And so it's really important to, to tell the patient, look, these are the type of shoes that you need. You need them to protect protect the entire surface of the foot, not just the good soles at the bottom, but cover the entire foot, lace up or Velcro, whichever is easiest, but no sandals. Now, I remember a few years ago, WellMed was making available diabetic shoes. You'd get fitted and the shoes would be part of your insurance plan. Are we still doing that? We are. That's a Medicare guideline and we're following with that. And you can qualify for them once a calendar year. They do come with three sets of different inserts. So every few months you change the inserts to make the bottom of your shoe feel fresh. And those are designed to give you more room or what's the advantage of a diabetic shoe? They're designed to reduce friction both on the bottom of your foot and across the actual parts of the shoe that touch your foot. Um, They are typically wider shoes than are offered over the counter. Um, and they are going to be measured for you every year. Every time you get shoes, your foot's going to be measured. So they're designed for your size foot. Correct. So you think I'm bigger than an eight now, huh? I don't know. You might want to check. Oh, we could do that. <laughs> Nobody really sells shoes that you can get them checked anymore. So the S- little local shoe store is gone. is gone. Right. SAS does a fairly good job of training their staff. So if you're not diabetic and don't qualify for the shoes, they do a good job of training their staff on how to size people. Um, New Balance also, if you actually go to one of the three stores here in San Antonio, does a good job of training their staff on sizing. Yeah, there's one at the Quarry Village, mm-hmm. New Balance. Yes. Now, when I was a kid, Dr. Wallace, Garfinkel's <laughs> shoe store in Cleveland, Ohio, had a little machine you stepped into and you saw your toes and saw how the shoe fit. I'm sure it was shooting all kinds of nasty stuff through your shoes, but it was cool to see your feet in a shoe. Mm-hmm. Those were x-rays, and I'm surprised you don't glow green. Well, I do in the dark. <laughs> you know, Perfect. I had a patient who said the same thing. She would stand on him and look, and she says, you know, I often wonder how much radiation I truly have in my body after right. that. <laughs> well, there were no regulations back then. No. But you could sure see if the shoe fit. Correct. And so now we have to go with an old-fashioned sizing your foot and putting your foot in the shoe. And then you want at least a thumb's width between your longest toe and the end of the shoe. And I say longest toe because that's not always the big toe for a lot of people. It would be the second toe? For me, it is the second toe. And for some people, it's their third. Really? Mm -hmm. Now, does each toe have a technical medical name other than big toe, second toe? Uh, we call the big toe their hallux, and then you count down from there, two through five. I see. Now, there are some people who, through accident, lose a toe, uh, and it can affect the way you walk. So it can affect the way you walk. A lot of people say that losing your big toe or your great toe or your hallux, whatever you want to call it, um, can cause you to lose your balance. A lot of people who lose their big toe through diabetes didn't have balance to begin with because they had neuropathy. And so we don't, through research, they can't confirm that patients lose their balance when they lose their big toe. I've seen some stories on uh, uh, cadaver part transplants where people have taken a big toe to replace a thumb. Mm -hmm. Because they look alike when you think about it. They function alike. I don't know that they look a whole lot alike. Well, I meant function. Yes, that was good. That's why you're the doctor and I'm not. um, Unfortunately, losing your thumb is extremely common in um, water skiing accidents because they get caught in the rope. 
and um, ropers, the rodeo, uh, they put their hand down on the horn and wrap that rope. And when the cow pulls, it pulls their thumb off. And so, yes, they do use Just rips big it toes. off. It does. But it, but it is awfully odd to look at. I, I do remember when I was growing up, I had a friend who had, she had a, an issue with one of her fingers and they had to amputate. And so they actually took one of her middle toes somewhere and, and made a finger out of it. And I just remember always staring at that thing thinking, you know, I surely wouldn't want to get married and have a ring on that finger. No. Because that is just the <laughs> ugliest thing I've ever seen. No. <laughs> but it functioned. To a degree, yes. Um, but can you imagine all of your fingers, you know, long and then this one little toe thing on your hand? It, it, it Yeah, it was kind of strange. You know, I would rather think of dead turkeys walking around a ring than a guy losing <laughs> or a woman her thumb in a rodeo. Unfortunately, it happens. But they use the big toe on the to replace the thumb because having an opposable thumb is really important to the way we live. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the difference between us and a lot of uh, <laughs> a mammals. A lot of mammals, yes. My dog, Absolutely. for example, would open cans if she had... Opposable thumbs. Oh, she'd just go get the turkey, the turkey uh, dogs, right? The turkey hot dogs. Oh, she loves turkey dogs. <laughs> I've got a big digress, big German Shepherd, about 110 pounds or oh, so. Wow. And she's the sweetest dog unless she's never met you. Oh. And then she would rip you into little pieces unless you have a turkey dog in your hand. And then you're her friend. Forever. Forever. So I hate to say this because if someone broke into our house meaning to do no good, Lucy would come at him. But if that thug had a turkey dog, she'd just lick him to death. <laughs> it's amazing to see. It's her kryptonite. It's her kryptonite. That's exactly right. Anything else we need to know about bunions before we jump to hammer toes? No. I like that name, hammer toes. You like that one better. But I don't want one. <laughs> no. no, just a, it's important to know that we don't do surgery unless we have to. And in, in, the, in the podiatry world, that means that you're either having uncontrolled pain um, or you're having some sort of ulceration or wound that's being caused by that deformity. And then you can go in and fix the bone. Yes, sir. Is that a permanent fix or does it grow back? Unfortunately, the way our feet are, the younger you are when you get it fixed, the more likely it is to come back. I didn't want to hear that answer. Sorry. (laughs) And, And then can you do the surgery again? You can. You can repeat the surgery. It usually is a different surgery because of the deformities different each time. Wow. And have you redone those? I have. Um, And sometimes they go on to have a bigger surgery where they have to stay off their foot a little bit longer just because you have to do something different to make it um, more correct. So let's segue into something called hammer toe. (laughs) Yes. Everybody knows that name, but they don't know what it means. Right. And so a hammer toe is a contracture, usually of your lesser toes. It can happen to your great toe, but it's a contracture. It can be rigid and can be flexible, depending on your particular um, situation. But when it bothers people is two parts. It either rubs the top of their toe, rubs on their shoe because it's bumped up like a mountain, or the tip of their toe rubs on the floor and or their shoe because it's hard, it's rigid, and it it has friction between the pulp of their toe and the floor. It's not flexible. Right. What causes hammer toe? Unfortunately, also genetics. Um, and so it's an imbalance of the small muscles in your foot and the wear and tear throughout our life. They become fatigued and we end up with hammer toes. So my grandma Tamarkin had these incredible bunions. Am I at risk? At age 76 of developing bunions? Of course you are. Um, well, thank you. But it usually comes, it, it's especially predominant if your mother or father had them. We see them more in people. So a closer in relationship. Relative, yes, sir. Oh, okay. You know, if you ever look at some people's feet, and, and, I, and I love my little old people, but I have, and I have told them, I said, ooh, you know, if the ones that have really pretty feet, I'm like, oh, those are beautiful feet, especially the men who really have some nice feet. I'm like, those are beautiful feet. But I don't say anything to the ones that don't have such beautiful feet, because you look at some of these and I think, oh, oh, Lord, these are the ugliest feet I've ever seen. It looks like they could swoop down and catch their dinner with their feet. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I never ever thought about waking up one day and saying, you know, Cora, I want to work on feet, you know, especially because these hammer toes sometimes are just ugly. They're really, really ugly. But I tell you what, after they're fixed, they really do look so much better. You snip tendons or how do you fix them? So on the flexible ones, you can. You can snip a tendon and they straighten out. 
Unfortunately, if they are rigid or semi-rigid, then we have to go in and do some bone work to get them to straighten out. Oh, that sounds so. painful too. Oh, now you're asleep when the surgery is being done. You are asleep when the surgery happens. That's true. And so we take out either part of the joint or the entire joint that's causing the problem and straighten out the toe. Depending on how bad it is, we can either leave that flexible or we can fuse it together with a pin of some sort. Um, and those are internal and external. So if we use an internal pin, nothing has to be removed. If we use an external pin, after about six weeks, the pin's removed in the office. You can't just pull it out yourself? We don't recommend yeah, that. Yeah, we don't recommend that. <laughs> Both of your eyes open so we, wide. You know, I can honestly say, practicing out in Floorsville and, and some of the outlying communities, we have people who will, they're farmers, and they're going to do what they're going to do. And, and the compliance is always an issue, especially after having some type of surgery where you have a pin sticking out. And I always would tell him, look, you really have to follow the directions. If I don't think you're going to follow the directions, I'm not going to refer you, you know, because if you're going to go get on the tractor and you're going to put your boot on with pins sticking out of your leg, you know, or your foot... That's not what we're here to do. And and I have had people pull their own pins out. I do not recommend it because what happens if there's a complication? You're just opening yourself up for infection and potentially losing your toes or foot. Wow. Yeah, it's it's scary. But out in the suburbs, you know, of, of San Antonio, you just never know what you're going to or the rural areas, I should say, of San Antonio. You never know what you're going to get. So you really have to watch these patients. You do. You have to give them yeah. good education, just like we talked well, about heck, last week. Well, I can week. rip these stitches out. I don't need to go back in. Oh, no, don't you need to that. come. <laughs> come back and see us. It's all included in the fee. You don't have to pay a copay to come back for those post-operative visits. And so it's really important that you come in. Um, and let the doctor do all those fun things. Do you, when when you uh, fix a hammer toe, do people have more than one, or is it usually just one? Can happen both ways. So some people have five, and some people five have five hammer toes. Five hammer toes on one foot, um, and some people have just one that's bothersome, and so we just fix the one. If they have them on both feet, do you work on one foot at a time? Traditionally, yes, and that is to leave them with one good foot that's healed and that's sound to walk on because you will have to be non-weight bearing for a little bit if not for a few weeks so you be in a wheelchair or on crutches crutches or a walker or a wheelchair yes sir and then when they start to walk they usually use a boot is that correct yes ma'am so when you leave the hospital you're either in a boot or a shoe and that is what you'll use to ambulate until the doctor takes the stitches and the, and the uh, pin out. And unfortunately, that leaves our patients sometimes at a risk for falls. So we were dealing with geriatrics, and they have a shoe that's and they're uncoordinated as it is, and and they have this shoe that kind of floppy looks floppy and, and isn't isn't the most beautiful thing, let's put it that way. But then the boots are heavy as well. So sometimes coordination can be an issue. Yes. And so we always suggest that they use a cane, a walker, um, or crutches, whatever they feel comfortable with, just for stability, if for nothing else. Interesting. I I had total knee replacement surgery. And for a while, I had a walker. And before I started using it, I was a little vain. So, you know, I don't want to do that. But I found it very helpful. They are helpful. And even if you my feel walker unsteady, became my friend. that's good. Even if you feel unsteady, they're nice to have. Um, and you don't have to necessarily put all of your weight on it, but it's just to have in case you feel the um, unbalance and feel like you're going to fall. It was a whole world I knew nothing about until I got a walker. And I went to uh, Champions in uh, uh, the medical center area. Uh, and I was amazed at the available selection of walkers and the add-ons. Yes. They had cup carriers. They had One of them I saw had a radio built in. It was oh unbelievable yes, for it's, walkers. It's just like my son's stroller. You can buy all kinds. Oh, Exa- wow. oh that's true. So. Yeah, we bought an Orville stroller, which is uh, the Cadillac of strollers. A lot of money. <laughs> a lot of money. But we had twins, uh, and it was front and back, so they weren't side to side oh. so we could fit through every doorway. Right. Because if they're wide, you can't, you can't fit go through, through all those no. doorways. When, when you think about bunions versus hammer toes, you, you have a preference that you like to work on? I like them both. Um, bunions are more predominant in our practice. Unfortunately, hammer toes cause a lot more ulcerations, either at the top of the first joint that rubs on the shoe or on the distal tip of the toe. Um, so we do do... Distal a, means up or down. 
It, mean, it means the very end of oh, your okay. toe, the sorry. Tip. That's the all right. tip of your toe. That's okay. Um, and so we do a lot more hammer toe work because of thick calluses and ulcerations. We can also treat them conservatively, though. You don't have to have surgery. A, if they're not painful, we're not doing surgery on them or causing you a problem. And B, we can treat them by either lifting up the, the tip of your toe so it's not rubbing on the end of the shoe or we can uh, cover, like we talked about, the silicone sleeves. They make them for hammer toes also. Next one that is on the list that they gave me was <laughs> not only dealing with bunions and not only uh, dealing with the question of hammer toes, uh, but the question of gout, yes. which is a painful malady it caused is. by Louis Fourteenth eating a lot of fat foods. It's all Louis's fault. I it agree. is Louis's fault. <laughs> I don't know that your gout is Louis's fault, but um, that's where they found out about it. So gout is a condition that is an arthritic condition. It's extremely common in the feet because it happens in cooler joints. And the joint behind your big toe is a cooler joint in your body. So the point of that is, is it's not going to happen in your hip because your hip is technically warmer than your foot is on a day-to-day basis. So it's extremely painful when you get a gout flare and it's important to get it under control because it can cause bone degradation or to the bones to go away in an abnormal fashion and cause you to have other problems down the road. So give us gout 101. What is it? So gout is in a collection of uric acid that <laughs> collects you. in your Thank bloodstream. You Sorry. That's okay. Um, and so what it does is it crystallizes, of course, in those cooler joints, it crystallizes and becomes um, gouty tophi, and that becomes an irritant to the area. But when you have an acute gouty flare, your uric acid is high, and you get red, hot, swollen. It almost looks like an infection to the joint that's affected. And painful. Extremely painful. It is uh, stereotypically the weight of a sheet will be very painful for you. Wow. Now, now there are triggers that that can be avoided um, to prevent gout flares. And and some of them, you know, alcohol is definitely one that you want to avoid. Um, You know, when I have seen patients who are heavy drinkers and and do have that collection um, of the uric acid right in their in their foot after a after a binge. And so you really want to stay away from those. Now, there are some natural remedies that that we, you know, advocate for. Um, Not sure about you, but what is the research show on the sour cherry juice? So cherries are actually very good for gout, and they reduce attacks. Um, and they just eating cherries is good for them, except for if you're diabetic, that might do some blood right. sugar. Blood sugar. Um, but the sour cherry juice is an easy way, shelf um, more stable than a fresh cherry and easier to get more concentrated Not values. maraschino cherries, though, no. I will say. Those are processed. Mm. <laughs> and lots of sugar. Yes. 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 So what does the cherry juice do? We're not sure, but it lowers your uric acid level, and that's what's key to controlling your gout. And you test for uric acid how? It's a blood test, or they can do a urine test. It's a 24-hour collection of urine. Um, usually, I've only seen that done in the hospital because they have you as a captive audience. Um, but a blood test is the way that it's usually done in the clinic. And what are the numbers surrounding uric acid that are good versus bad? So I'll be real honest with you. As a podiatrist, I don't know. Because well, I don't okay. I don't draw those labs. I refer almost all my patients back to their primary care for medical control. I do the local control of their symptoms. Um, and if they have TOFI that are causing them problems, we'll cut those out. But What's a TOFI? The collection of the uric acid becomes, it's a white chalky material that collects in your joints. And so you so can actually see it when you go in there. Sometimes you can see it on their skin. And oh. Some people have really bad gout. You can see it in their ears. So, you know, gout is one of those things that we manage in primary care most of the time. You know, that's the first place that the patient's going to present is in primary care. And and they're going to have this horrible complaint, um, you know, this bad, bad pain. And a lot of times they think, you know, I've injured myself. Uh, And when you ask them, you know, they meet criteria for eating some of the foods that that typically will cause a gout flare. But I I know Dr. Wallace also has some other recommendations here for, um, for treatment of gout, too. I see vitamin C and coffee. So do we see, considering coffee is, is drink 
heavily. I know my, my parents are from Chicago and, and typically drink a lot of coffee during the day. And my dad actually said that he started drinking coffee years ago after his first gout flare. And so since then, he, he swears that coffee has, has kept gout to a, a minimum for him. Yeah, they say that coffee does help. The only thing about coffee is you want to avoid the sugar and the creamer that sure. we want well, to put in the coffee. S- straight black, that, strong and, coffee. And the That's caffeine. good for them. The caffeine, I mean, with control is okay, but the the coffee shows that it helps the gout. And the caffeine doesn't seem to affect gout, but it might affect your other conditions. Anything else we should know about gout other than nobody wants it? Nobody wants it. You And if you have gout, it's important to take your medications to control the gout on a daily basis. Even though you're not having a flare, you need to take the medications to prevent the flares from coming back. It's not a medication you take like a Tylenol just when you need it. You need to take them all the time. What are the meds? Do you know? You, I knew you were going to ask me that. Now I can't think of it off the top of my head. Allopurinol, <laughs> Allopurinol is that's one what of it the is. most common. Yeah, why do you put me on the spot like that? Because you're the nurse <laughs> practitioner, and I'm not. No, allopurinol is usually, and it's usually at 300 milligrams is where our patients usually end up. You can titrate it up, but it is one. It's it's huh. kind of like those those medications like for COPD, the inhalers. You know, I, I, I always laugh when my patients will tell me, oh, yeah, I just take that one as needed. I'm like, no, that is a stabilizer medication that is an all-the-time medication do you want gout no I don't want gout then take your 300 milligrams of allopurinol every day and it'll keep it away it it should it should it should it should help prevent or minimize attacks now you can still have attacks while on allopurinol and and get or get a gout flare and then you have to manage with uh, usually it's anti-inflammatories or the NSAID medications but you have to be cautious with patients who are on blood thinners or have kidney damage you got to be really careful with those got to be aware of all that absolutely so dr wallace asking for a friend who gets ingrown toenails all the time what causes them? Ill-fitting shoes, Ron. So I in- usually don't wear shoes around the house. <laughs> Ingrown toenails can come from a lot of different things. Ill-fitting shoes is one of the big ones, but it can also be the shape of your nails. And the shape of your nails can be affected by your genetics, but also by the shoes that you've worn over the years that your toenails have accommodated to. And so a lot of people get ingrown toenails along the inside of their big toe because They have worn shoes that have been pushing against their big toe for years. And a lot of nails aren't technically ingrown. So an ingrown toenail is when the nail physically grows into the skin. Um, And so they're typically extremely painful. Um, And that way, we just need to get the nail out if it's not really ingrown. If it's just incurved, we can manage it. But if it's really into the skin, usually requires antibiotics and a good nail debridement and maybe having the nail segment removed with what we call a matrixectomy, which is where we put a chemical down in your nail bed to help that part of your nail not come back. Now, for a while, I know at WellMed, they weren't using that chemical. And it's back. And the reason it's back is is it's in individual sizes. So that chemical is extremely caustic and can burn your skin. And that's what we're using it for in the foot is to burn those cells so they don't grow nail anymore. It's going to kill that nail bed. Right. It's going to kill just that little portion. That's right. And so we didn't use it for a long time because all we could get it for from the manufacturer in was in a big bottle and if you spilled it you ran the risk of burning or killing cells of whoever it came into contact with so we get it in small single use vials now and my friend had heard that uh, it, it had been discontinued <laughs> so i'll well, tell him it's back yeah tell your friend it's back that's cool <laughs> and for the uh, self-treatment which many folks engage in before they desperately <laughs> seek a podiatrist <laughs> Digging out that ingrown nail by yourself, not recommended? Not recommended. And it has to do with the fact that I always tell my patients that your feet seem to get further away from you the older that you get. That's true. There's a little protrudence in the middle that causes that problem. But it also has to do with your joints don't blend the way that they used to. And your eyes don't see as far as they used to. So it's hard for you to actually treat them yourself. And not only that, but if if you're the one that's experiencing the ingrown 
ingrown toenails over and over and over again and you're you're self-diagnosing and self-extracting, then you're probably not cutting your toenails correctly anyway, which a lot of people will tend to cut them according to a curvature and they need to be cut straight across so that those don't grow back down into the skin. I have to tell my friend. Tell your friend. Tell and, your friend to phone a, phone a podiatrist and, and right away. And use a <laughs> nail tech if you can't cut your own toes. And we do have nail technicians. We have eight in the San Antonio area that treat our, um, our patients that are diabetic and have other problems that they can't treat their feet that we, we do refer to our nail technicians. And it makes a difference? Makes a huge difference. So I don't recommend going to your local nail shop and, and having a, a pedicure. While it feels great, you also have to wonder, okay, look at their sterilization techniques. You know, they're not peel packing. Or if they are peel packing, is their autoclave really working? Have those been sterilized before they were used on you versus somebody else? I mean, I, I know people all the time that get fungus, nail fungus, because of, you know, going and having, you know, dirty instruments used or, or whatever. So, or having water stay underneath the toenail. Hold that thought. Sure. In a moment, another question asking for a friend about nail fungus. Okay. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Cora Juke, and our very special guest, Dr. Corey Wallace, who is at the WellMed Specialist for Health out in the Northeast, but travels to a few outlying clinics. You hear WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer. Carol Zornio, we talk a lot about caregiving on Caregiver SOS on air, but what is it? Caregiving is caring for a family member, a friend, a loved one, someone who's in your life that needs help with bathing, dressing, buying groceries, medical appointments. If you do any of those things, you're a caregiver. And how can this program help? Caregiver SOS On Air has information from people who have been caregivers, who work with caregivers. It can be book authors, scientists, doctors, the latest information on caregiving right here on KLUP. And one of the things we learn from so many folks is they fail to ask for help when they need it. Well, caregivers do need help. We don't like to ask for help, but we need it. And you'll get tips on how to ask for help and how to have a better life as a family caregiver. Plus, there's a great website you can go to, caregiversos.org. Caregiver SOS on air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. So we need to record what we talk about while a, uh, an announcement is running here on Wilmot Radio because, again, I learned something I never knew about. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Cora Juke. You hear WellMed Radio on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. And our special guest today is Dr. Corey Wallace, a podiatrist who's with WellMed Northeast Specialists in for Health. And you were telling me that people who raise turkeys very often will set a radio to go off periodically to make sure the turkeys are up walking around and eating. That's right. All through the night and all day, they want to be fun to, to know what up. they're listening to. I don't know. You know, I many, done it a long time. many of the 4-H projects, depending on all species, I guess, um, they they use a radio around, like we use a radio around steers, and we do that because we want them to be used to the background noise when they go into the show ring that they're not scared. So we use it for all different reasons. But yeah, it's a great it's a great tool. That way, they're not scared of you when you walk in and have all this noise going on. So it's continual for your steers. Oh, yeah. And they listen to all different things. You know, they listen to Tejano and country. You know, they put the request in the request box and, and like we that. review it. And, you know, if, if we're into that mood, we'll, we'll put it on there. Cool. I have one that wants to listen to reggae all the time, and I just get really tired of it. <laughs> we were talking about trimming nails. Yes. And uh, Cora mentioned something that I think most of us never think about. Uh, because the hand little trimmers you use are curved, we figure, well, that's the way you should cut your nails. Right. But it's not. It's not. We want them to be straight across, and we want you to be able to visualize both the medial and lateral, so that's both sides of your nail, um, at the at the very tip. And the reason is is because we tip don't... Tip of your toe. The tip of your toe. Um, because we don't want you to get an ingrown toenail. So when you trim them back to where you can't see that side... That's when you run the risk of making yourself have an ingrown toenail. I should talk to my friend. You should. Your friend is going to be so knowledgeable. Oh, I think that's cool. Your friend should possibly know about nail fungus, too. Well, I was going to ask about fungus. Uh, He asked me to ask you about fungus. 
So fungal, and there's an over-the-counter treatment, he said. There's lots of over-the-counter treatments. So fungus is a funny friend. So fungus is only diagnosable under a microscope. So we can't look at your toenails and say, you have fungus. There are a lot of people out there that have thick toenails that aren't necessarily fungus. They're dystrophic is what we call them. And they are... A th- thickening of your nail because you've put them in the wrong size shoes, you've kicked a few walls, you've kicked a table all throughout your life, and your nail bed is reacting to that and growing back thicker trying to protect itself. So if we take a sample of your nail and send it off for evaluation and it comes back that it is a fungus, then we want to treat it for sure. The topical over-the-counters can be used. They don't have any bad side effects The number one side effect is an ingrown toenail because people's nails get thinner and then can get ingrown. Um, But overall, the side effects are minimal and you can use them. I do suggest that people actually take the bottle if you're going to buy an over-the-counter Turn the box around and actually read on it what it's for. Because sometimes it will say on the back in fine print, not for nail use. And that is not the product that you want to use. That's interesting. Yes. So read the label. Read the label. Front and back. Including the small type. Right. (laughs) Wow. Now, is there anything we haven't asked you about all the stuff you do? Well, we do all kinds of things in podiatry. We do uh, skin, nails. We also do uh, all the way down to bones. So if there's a foot problem that you're having, we'd love to see you. And you have to talk to your primary care and get a referral to us. And if you have some an acute problem, we have openings almost every day for those acute problems. Acute meaning you need to see it now. Yes. Cool. I'll tell my friend because occasionally he gets those acute problems. You have to be worried about your friend. So I thank you for coming in. You're a delight to talk to. And uh, we really appreciate it. Dr. Cora Wallace, you. Northeast Specialist for Health, part of the WellMed system. That's fun. This is an interesting show. And... Look how much we learned. We learned a whole lot. That's cool. All about your feet. For Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks for joining us on WellMed Radio on 930 AM. The answer, we'll catch you next time around. You've been enjoying WellMed Radio, an exclusive presentation of WellMed Medical Management. Join us next week for more on your health and well-being. For more information on WellMed or to hear this broadcast again, go to wellmedmedicalgroup.com. We'll see you next week on WellMed Radio.